For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to look at maybe one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 through 14, which I titled, Does the Bible Perpetuate Misogyny? Kind of a provocative title. But um, I think, you know, it's worthwhile for us to maybe study other world religions because I think there's a common view out there that you know, world religions tend to bolster patriarchy. The view that, you know, men are above women and that women should be subjected. Um, you know, we see, for example, that religion has played its fair share in engendering patriarchy throughout the millennia, throughout human history. For example, if you look at rabbinic Judaism, this is the extra-biblical text, really a commentary on the Old Testament. The Babylonian Talmud says, woman is the origin of sin, and it is through her, that, through her that we all die. Do not leave a leaky cistern to drip or allow a bad wife to say what she likes. Pretty rough. Doesn't get much better from here either. Here's another quote from the Talmud. May the words of the Torah be burned and that they should be handed over to a woman. What about this one? Better a man's wickedness than a woman's goodness. It is woman who brings shame and disgrace. So, as you can see, many of these rabbis who contributed to the Babylonian Talmud we're not really big fans of women. In fact, there was a desire to try to hold women down and view them as less than men. Hinduism, you know, we, we tend to associate Hinduism with a world religion that's all about peace and harmony. And yet, it's interesting when you look at Hinduism that it also has kind of a negative view of women. This is from Manu's Code, an ancient text in Hinduism. Him to whom her father may give her or her brother with the father's permission, she shall obey as long as she lives. Though destitute of virtue or seeking pleasure elsewhere or devoid of good qualities, a husband must be constantly worshipped as a god by a faithful wife. In other words, he could be a malevolent husband, he could go out and cheat on his wife, he could mistreat her, and yet she is required to worship him as a god. This is uh, from Carmony and Carmony, a text that speaks on different world religions. They say, in later Hinduism, a widow was prohibited from mentioning any man's name but that of her deceased husband. Even if she had been a child bride or had never consummated her marriage, the widow was not to violate her duty to her deceased husband and remarry. If she did, she would bring disgrace upon herself in the present life and enter the womb of a jackal for the next rebirth. In such a social position, many widows must have felt that they had little to lose by throwing themselves on the husband's funeral pyre. This is the practice of suti, where as they were burning the body of uh, a woman's husband, or um, the body of this woman's uh, husband, that she would also throw herself on the funeral pyre as well. 
in an act of devotion to him. <clears throat> they go on to say, in Hindu society, women were not eligible for moksha. The best that a woman could hope for was to be reborn as a man. Not too bad, huh? What about this? To ritualize her attitude of devotion to her husband, Orthodox Hindu authors counseled wives to adore the big toe of their husband's right foot, bathing it as it were an idol and offering incense before it as, it as uh, if to a great god. Dang, talk about groveling. What about this? The birth of a girl was not an occasion for joy. Hindus attributed it to bad karma in a previous life and frequently announced at the event by saying, nothing was born. Islam. Um, this is from the Quran, Sutra 4, verse 34. Men are the managers of the affair of women. Righteous women are therefore obedient guarding the secret for God's guarding. And those you fear may be rebellious, admonish, banish them to their couches, and beat them. So the Quran actually authorizes beating your wife if she is out of line. Again, Karmani and Karmani say, for many men, the best part of the heavenly garden was the boor, the dark-eyed, buxom virgins. In addition to his earthly wife, each male in heaven could expect to have 70 birds that they would, they would never be sick, menstruating, pregnant, or bad-tempered or jealous. Of course, there was no corresponding um, reward for women. They point out he would be able to deflower a thousand birds each month and find them all intact when he returned to them. In other words, he could deflower a thousand women each month and then come back finding out that they were, all, they were virgins again. And so that was his reward. What about the secular worldview? Uh, this is from Friedrich Nietzsche. He says, woman is not capable of friendship. Women are still always cats and birds, whatever that means. Or in the best case, cows. Everything in woman is a riddle. And everything and woman hath one answer. Its name is childbearing. Man shall be educated for war, and women for the recreation of the warrior. Everything else is folly. Man's happiness is I will. Woman's happiness is he will. What about the early church fathers in Christianity? I mean... Certainly, they had a higher view of women, probably spoke highly of them. Here's uh, Jerome, one of the early uh, fathers from the fourth century. If we abstain from coitus, we honor our wives. If we do not abstain, well, what's the opposite of honor but insult? So it was virtuous to be married and to abstain from coitus with your wife. He says, as long as a woman is for birth and children, she is a, as different from man as body is from soul. But when she wishes to serve Christ more than the world, then she will cease to be a woman and be called a man. <laughs> Pretty bad. What about Tertullian? Do you not know that each of you, that is referring to women, 
is also an Eve. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. And you are the one who persuaded him who the devil was too weak to attack. So he lays the blame squarely on women for the fall of humanity. And yet it's really interesting when you look at passages like Romans chapter 5, Paul puts the responsibility of the fall squarely upon the man. Just the opposite of what the early church fathers were saying here. He goes on to say, he says, how easily you destroyed man, the image of God, because of the death which you brought upon us. Even the Son of God had to die. And so, you know, he's laying the responsibility of Christ's death um, on women. That they were, they were the reason, the source for why Jesus had to come. What about John Damascene? Woman is a wicked she-ass. A hideous tapeworm, the advanced post of hell. <laughs> All right. That's a pretty good sampling. We could go on all night long. History is filled with uh, real savage things that different world religions and different authors have said about women. Now, what are we to conclude? I think it's pretty obvious that religion has rarely been a friend of women. I mean, throughout history, there has been really a conspiracy to hold women down and to objectify them. And really, it's not an exaggeration to say that patriarchy has been a violent evil throughout history. You know, some people say, well, you know, the, the feminist movement are always trying to make it seem like men have mistreated women throughout human history, and they're wildly exaggerating that. And yet, when you look at history, if you're a student of history, uh, what they're saying is exactly right. It fits with the evidence that we see, that women throughout millennia, throughout the centuries, have been mistreated and held down by men. And only recently have uh, become liberated. What's the Bible's view of women? You know, when I quoted these early church fathers, these were not biblical authors, right? These were extra-biblical texts that we were looking at. Well, it's really interesting. When you look at the Bible... Even from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make both man and woman in our likeness and in our image. Um, and so God gave us really a picture for how we can have true equality. That both man and woman were created in God's image. Really, uh, if you look at the Old Testament books, both uh, Esther and Ruth feature a woman as their main character. Something that you would not find in other ancient literature. What about Galatians 3.28 in the New Testament? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You know, you get these sort of statements throughout the, throughout the New Testament that extol women. I mean, this would have been incredibly countercultural at the time that Paul was writing this. People would have looked at this and probably scoffed. There's no distinction between male or female, especially in the Greco-Roman world. Now, you know, today I think it's real popular to say that we were the ones, modern people were the ones who conceived of this idea of equality. You know, it's one of the great values that we hold in our culture today, 
this concept of equality. And yet, you know, it's not like we came up with this on our own. It finds its roots actually back in the Bible. You know, when you look at our world today, most people live their lives based on an atheistic naturalism. You know, the the view that we're just material beings, that really everything you look at in the world can be explained simply by natural selection, including things like morals. And so, you know, when you look at the world through that lens, where we're just like a bag of biological material sloshing around, in what sense can we really say that individuals contain value? I mean, how much more important are you than this chair under the naturalistic worldview? And so therefore, when we talk about this concept of equality, what are we even talking about under that paradigm? You know, when you look at a six foot seven, 350 pound, upper middle class white man, and then you compare that to a five foot two Mexican American woman who is underprivileged, in what sense are they really equal? He can overpower her, he has more resources than her. I mean, he's, they're not equal under the atheistic worldview. You know, when we talk about this concept of equality, we're really talking about the value that we possess as a result of being created in God's image. He's the one who gives us value, our identity. And so it's really interesting when you look at the biblical worldview, um, you know, people today are like, yeah, you know, this, this concept of equality, it's, it's something amazing. It's something that we've conceived of. And yet, you know, God has been standing there for, you know, millennia saying, I, I talked about that long ago. I gave you really the, the pattern for which you can have this kind of equality. Now, you know, critics of the Bible would look at this and say, well, one of the problems you run into is that there's an inconsistent message in the Bible. Yes, you have passages like this, and yet there are other passages that seem to contradict that, that seem to promote misogyny and patriarchy. Um, And really, one of the passages that they cite would be the one that we're going to look at here in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's just read through the whole passage so you can get kind of the big picture of how difficult it is and how confusing it, it can be upon first reading. Starting in verse 3 through 5. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It was just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. 
For as a woman came from man, so also a man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with their heads uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Boy, think about that in contemporary culture. You know, you're looking around the room and I'm like, well, why aren't any of the women in here wearing head coverings? And why are these guys in here with ponytails and mullets? It's a disgrace, according to Paul. You know, you look at this and you're just like, what is he talking about? This is so weird. This is exactly what people say when they are like, the Bible is just incomprehensible. And also it seems to suggest that, you know, women should remain subservient to men. Well, I think we should take another pass at this and see if we can try to understand the text better. Um... I think before we launch into this, though, it's important for us to understand Paul's thesis because some of the details are a little bit hazy, but I think the main point's very clear in the context of 1 Corinthians 11. His thesis statement could be summarized as, although women can exercise their new freedom in Christ, they should show restraint so as not to damage Christ's reputation. So there was something about what these women were doing that was causing offense to the culture in which they were a part. And we want to try to understand what that was. All right, let's start in verse 3 again. He says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, Craig Keener, commentator and New Testament expert, points out that Paul employs a transcultural argument only when he's making a transcultural point. In other words, you know, there are passages that transcend time and culture. Uh, for example, when God says, you shall not lie. That's not like, well, you know, depending on the culture that you're a part of, I guess, lying could be right or wrong. It just really depends, right? It's a transcultural principle. And so Craig Keener points out that there are transcultural principles that Paul lays out at times, but he points out that this wearing of head coverings is not one of those points, that it's isolated to the particular culture that he's speaking to. Remember, we have to understand the Bible was written to very specific people at a specific time in history. And so for in order for us to understand what the Bible is saying to us, we must first understand what the author was trying to convey to the original audience, and then from that we can draw application. Well, <clears throat> this word head, it's really interesting. It could mean literal head, like the, like the term means, but it also could mean source or beginning in Greek. Um, for example... Emperor Tiberius called his father Augustus. He says, your head and father of the people. Uh, Referring to to, uh, Augustus, his father, as the beginning or the source or his source. Uh, Ulpian, who is a um, Roman um, expert in the law, 
from the second century AD, so this is in the 100, says, every woman is both the head, beginning and end of every family. In other words, he was saying that woman is the source of the children that are a part of her family, or the beginning. In Greek poetry, they often refer to Zeus as the head and beginning of all things, or the source. And so, some biblical experts and scholars have looked at this passage and have preferred to see this passage uh, replaced with this word source instead, translated that way. And so it actually makes a little bit more sense. He says, now I want you to realize that the source of every man is Christ, and the source of woman is man, and the source of Christ is God. So if you break that down, he points out that the source of every man is Christ. And, you know, of course, the Bible declares that Jesus indeed is God and that he came in human form in the man Jesus Christ to come and die for us. And so Christ not only created man at the beginning, but also gives all of us new birth, a new life as a result of receiving his forgiveness. Secondly, he says that the source of woman is man. And if you know anything about the Genesis account, he's talking about the creation account where God took from Adam's body the material from which he he made woman. And so he points out that the man came first and then from that God wrought woman. Um, And he reiterates this in verse 8 and in verse 12. He says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. So in the context, it makes sense for us to look at this troubling verse and, and understand it as source instead of head. And finally, he says, The source of Christ is God. And of course, since Jesus indeed is God. He's not saying that God created Jesus, but that instead he brought about Jesus in human form on earth. Then he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Okay, now what is he talking about here? Uh, I think there are two possible explanations. One is that it was common for men in the ancient world to cover their heads while worshiping false gods in pagan temples. You, we have examples of this where, you know, emperors would wear a toga and, you know, put part of their toga over their head as they were worshiping in the temple. And so it's possible that the Corinthian believers were involved in some sort of syncretism where they were starting to mix some of these different customs and rituals that they learned while, you know, sacrificing to these false gods and applying it to their worship of Christ. The other option is that he might be referring to long hair. I mean, in verse 14, he says, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace? Again, he's not saying that, you know, men should cut off their hair if they have long hair, that it's like morally wrong for a man to have long hair. He's simply saying, in your culture, people associated men with long hair with an effeminate character trait. And so uh, 
that's one of the things he's saying is that, you know, it's, it's very uncommon for men to have long hair in your culture. And so he's saying that in the same way, um, you know, when a man is praying or prophesying, he should, he should uh, have his head covered. Or um, <clears throat> that he should, uh, should not do that. All right, verse 5 and 6. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. Okay, again, what is he talking about here? Um, you know, what he's referring to here is this concept that in the ancient world, any woman who uncovered her head was revealing her beauty. It's kind of hard for us to understand just kind of how scandalous this would have been. Um, here's one author who states that a woman guilty of adultery shall have her hair cut off and be a prostitute. And so Paul is using this argument where he's uh, taking their reasoning to its most absurd conclusion. He's saying, look, if you're going to bury your hair, which would have been scandalous in your culture, might as well just cut it all off, which is what they would have done to the prostitutes. Now, in order to understand his argument, I think it's good for us to understand the background as well. You know, modesty in the ancient world is really hard for us to understand. You know, today, uh, you know, the human body is commercialized. And so we're inundated with, you know, images of, you know, scantily clad people, both men and women, just bombarded with those images constantly. Yet in the ancient world, you know, if a man saw even uh, a woman's ankles, it could be the cause for lust, let alone seeing her hair, which was associated with her beauty. You know, even a hundred years ago in America, uh, people were a lot more modest than they are today. Um, <clears throat> for example, check out some of these modesty laws in America. This is from 1907. This is Annette Kellerman who was arrested for wearing a one-piece bathing suit. Uh, I mean, you look at that and you're just like, boy, you don't see anybody on the beach wearing that unless they need like SPF 100 or something like that. Uh, here is another picture from 1922. This is from the uh, Potomac River where police were measuring women's bathing suits to ensure that they were in compliance with the government's length policy. And, and you know, there's some other pictures depicting these police officers arresting women because they had, you know, uh, bathing suits that were too short. And so, you know, it just gives you sort of an idea of how removed we are from the audience that Paul was talking about. Their concept of modesty uh, is way different than ours. Secondly, you know, separation of male and female spheres of life in the Greek world was an important thing. That men and women didn't mix. Even uh, husbands and wives often did not go out in public with one another. Kenneth Dover, a, um, a distinguished classicist from Oxford, says, one speaker in court seeks to impress the jury with the respectability of his family. He told them that his sisters and nieces are so well brought up 
that they are embarrassed in the presence of even a man who is a member of the family. And so that was regarded as like an honorable thing for, you know, you to just uh, disassociate yourself even from your female family members. It was a sign of respectability. What about uh, marriage contracts from Egypt in the first century B.C.? Included a demand that if a wife, uh, that the wife not leave the home without her husband's permission. And so a woman was not allowed to just venture out into public uh, without her husband's permission. And so there was this uh, concept of separation between uh, female and, and, and males in the Greek world. Plutarch, the Roman uh, historian, says that a woman ought to do her talking either to her husband or through her husband. And so, again, it shows you the kind of hierarchy that existed in the ancient Greek world. Uh, Plutarch recommends that a virtuous woman ought to be most visible in her husband's company and to stay in the house and hide herself when he is away. And so, really, you know, a lot of women in the ancient world, wives, uh, were just there for show and status. And a lot of times, you know, men would would go out and uh, sleep with other women or men Uh, But they would remain married, and that was part of the the arrangement. It was okay. Number three, head coverings in the ancient world. Uh, We have documented cases where Roman men divorced their wives for not wearing a veil in public. Although, you know, this wasn't true all across the board, that women had to wear, you know, a head covering. It was generally understood as being, you know, something that a respectable, conservative woman would do in the ancient world. Um, In the ancient Jewish world, people viewed any woman who ventured into public with their heads uncovered as seeking to to seduce men. Craig Keener says, a Jewish woman who ventured into public with her hair down and exposed to view, or who had otherwise could be accused of flirtatious behavior, could be divorced with no financial support from her marriage contract. So just even venturing out into public without her head covering would be enough to just throw her away. A woman uncovering her head could be described as nearing the final stage and seducing a man. Jewish teachers permitted loosing a woman's hair only in the case of, of an adulterous woman who was publicly shamed by exposure to the sight of a man, of men. Probably, you know, um, uh, humiliated and mocked publicly. But even in the case, uh, they warned that it should not be done with women whose hair was extremely beautiful, lest the young priest be moved to lust. <laughs> you're like, uh, okay, you're an adulterous woman, but you've got to keep your head covering on because you're too hot. <clears throat> now, the issue in the Corinthian church may have been a clash of cultural values centering on modesty. You know, it might be that the upper class were not concerned with the conservative ways of the lower class, and so they were more concerned with fashion. You know, you see, uh, you know, actors, actresses, the wealthy in our culture, you know, they wear provocative stuff, right? Stuff that most, you know, Ohioans from Columbus, Ohio wouldn't really wear. I, I remember going to like San Fran for the first time and uh, just seeing everybody decked out you know, and, and wearing stuff that you're just like, whoa, wow, those are some really tight shorts he, he's wearing there, you know, and <laughs> never seen that before. And, uh, but you know, uh, when, when you're wealthy, 
you feel the liberty to break some of these, these cultural conventions uh, when it comes to fashion. So it might be that the wealthy class in Corinth were more concerned about fashion and, and doing things that would have offended some of those who were lower class in that culture and more conservative. We, we gather this because most women in Greco-Roman uh, statues and other artwork from this period depicted them with uncovered heads. And of course, you know, these were the wealthy people who had enough money to commission artists to paint them or to, to sculpt them. All right, verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. I have to admit, the first phrase here, the first clause, a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. I'm not sure what that means. Um, but I think we could take a stab at this part where it says, but the woman is the glory of man. Um, you know, when Paul calls woman the glory of man, he isn't diminishing her glory since God made her equal to the man's image. And so um, what he's instead talking about is this concept that glory augments the reputation, wealth, or the status of another. You know, in the ancient world, there, and really even in, in many cultures today, if you did something in public that, that brought shame upon yourself, it would be attributed to your family as well. That it would be dishonorable to your family name. And so likewise, in the ancient world, when a woman was acting in a way that was, you know, dishonorable, it brought dishonor upon her husband and vice versa. When a man went out and did something dishonorable, it would reflect poorly upon the wife. Now, this isn't a negative thing because we know, for, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.20, that Paul says, are you not my joy, my glory, and my crown? And he's not using that in a pejorative way, right? He's using that in a way to suggest that their growth in Christ accentuated him and his honor and his glory. Therefore, you know, a woman uncovering or shaving her head brought disgrace not only upon herself, but also upon her husband. And, you know, presumably some of these husbands were not believers in Christ yet. And so you can imagine he's hearing these reports about his wife going out to these, you know, Christian house churches and, you know, she decides that she's going to bare her head. And, you know, he, he probably is thinking to himself, that's really disrespectful that she's doing that out in public. And that might have actually turned him off from Christ, creating a further barrier to him taking an interest in Christ. He says in verse 8 and 9, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You know, you look at this... And you think to yourself, okay, see, this is a, one of those passages that seem to clearly point out that a woman is only here for a man's pleasure. And yet, Paul balances this in verse 11 and 12 where he says, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. And so he points out that, you know, both men and women are inter interdependent upon one another. And finally, in verse 10 and 13, he says, For this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. 
Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Uh, one way to render this last clause there, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. One way to read that would actually be that a woman ought to have authority or control over her head. In other words, the way that she, she goes out and appears in public. And he says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Um, again, you know, we have to understand the, 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 the background here, what people would be thinking. This thing here in verse 10, the part about angels, that's pretty weird. It's hard to understand. But again, this word angel, uh, angelos, could actually mean a transcendent power who carries out various missions or tasks, or a human messenger serving as an envoy. And so what most commentators believe is that this is actually people who have heard or witnessed some of the crazy stuff that was going on in these Corinthian house churches and was reporting it to a bunch of different people. To maybe put it in more modern terms, you know, imagine a visitor comes to a home church gathering at, you know, a campus house. And, you know, they sit down, and right before the teaching begins, four guys walk in in day-glow yellow Speedos and decide that they're going to sit down right next to her. And um, just, you know, sitting there chilling during the whole meeting in a Speedo. You just be like, what? What is going on here? That's so bizarre. It's so weird. It's not like morally wrong that these dudes are wearing Speedos, but why, why are they doing this? You know, and so you can imagine the next day, uh, this visitor, this guest, you know, goes to work and one of their friends says, yeah, what were you doing last night? And she's like, yeah, it was the weirdest thing. I went to this Bible study and these three dudes walk in with Speedos on. Like, man, I'm never going to go out to a Bible study like that. And so, really, you know, that's, that's kind of the same impression that these women were giving off. It was, it was actually creating a lot of controversy in the Corinthian city about Christ. Okay, let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, the Bible consistently holds a high view of women. The Bible extols women really in stark contrast to many ancient texts and ancient literature that we read. Secondly, Paul calls on his audience to restrain their newfound freedom in Christ to protect Christ's reputation. That's really the basis of this passage, the point. That, you know, when we have this new freedom in Christ, we shouldn't use that as a license to do whatever we want, to just needlessly offend people. But instead, we should use that as an opportunity to show people love, as Paul has been really saying throughout this whole section. All right, why don't we just uh, pray and then we can hang out? Yeah, thanks that uh, we never stop learning. I know that <clears throat> this pass through uh, 1 Corinthians has really taught me a lot, especially studying for this uh, passage and preparing. I, I know that it's really opened my eyes to this passage, which has caused me a lot of confusion. So... Thanks that uh, we never stop learning. Um, and I pray that, you know, we would have the confidence to try to tackle some of these difficult passages that cause us trouble. And um, I pray over time that we can become great students of your word. 
people who uh, can answer some of these difficult questions that people ask regarding these really hard passages. And finally, Lord, I just uh, thank you that uh, you have created all of us equal and that um, through Christ you have, uh, you know, blurred all those distinctions that we see in our culture, uh, race, class, gender, and that we're all one in Christ. Thank you for that. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.